Welcome back to Broken Oars podcast, to our celebration of Head of the River, Women's Head of the River, the Oxford and Cambridge boat race, and all things head racing as we head into, did you see what I did there? The regatta season. We're in that wonderful transition period where all of the long stuff is done, and we're now going to start doing the short, sharp, fast stuff. People who are thinking about Henley will be aiming for that. People who are thinking about Met and Marlowe and Wallingford will be thinking about that. And people who are thinking about the glories of the summer season, which let's be honest is all of us, will be thinking about that. And so we return with part five of our enconium to all of those things. The mystery of the murdered bow, the only Sherlock Holmes story ever written about rowing, and it was written by Broken Oars Podcast. Now, Sherlock because we're on second name terms now. And Dr. Watson have been called from 221B Baker Street, their chambers, 21B, to be or not to be? 221B, by Inspector Lestrade. A young man has been found dead at one of the Cambridge colleges. Self-murder is suspected. Holmes and Watson have caught the train, that wonder of the modern age, because they all worked back then in a way that they don't now. They've dashed to Cambridge, they've got to the college, they've gone up to the rooms and found poor Mr. Martin dead. A single gunshot wound to the head. The door was locked. It had to be forced by Mr. Potter, the porter. Isomorphic naming, in case you're wondering. Holmes looks around the room. He inspects it. He finds a priest's hole. He finds a button. The priest's hole might be something. It might be nothing. The button might be something. It might be nothing. But he will have to investigate. The bed has not been slept in. When was Mr. Martin killed? Was he killed? Was it indeed murder? Holmes begins investigating. His investigations lead him down to the boathouse, where he interviews a Mr. Pittman and a Mr. Muttlebury. Rowing historians and scholars among you will recognise those two names as being famous stalwarts of the Victorian rowing era and famous boat race exponents. And Holmes talks to them about rowing and he learns that Mr. Martin had only just recently won his seat in the Cambridge Eight for the annual boat race. He talks a little bit more to Mr. Muttlebury and learns about why rowers are the noblest of all creatures, about how rowing is about the subordination of the individual to the good and will of the collective, about how each rower in a boat is pulling for their partner and their crewmates and why Mr. Martin was such a special fit into that. Mr. Muttlebury goes down the importance of each seat in rowing and breaks it down for Mr. Holmes. And by the time Mr. Holmes has finished his investigation at the boathouse, he's no further to finding out the truth. In fact, he has much more, much, much more to ponder. Which brings us to part five. We walked back along the road to town. Holmes was silent and I knew that he was turning over all that we had seen and heard since we arrived in Cambridge to try and make sense of it. For myself, I couldn't. Why on earth would a young man with good prospects and standing, with his whole life ahead of him, suddenly end it all? For no reason that I could see. There was no rhyme or reason to it, unless there was something else to it. I'd see why Mr. Martin had taken the route that he had. The night was falling fast. 
Freezing mist was beginning to gather on the surface of the cam, making the river look dark and mysterious. A breeze rippled across its surface, reaching us a moment later. It was cold enough to remind me that although we had entered March, winter's grip had only recently lessened. I pulled my coat about me. Nothing to stop the weather in these parts, said Holmes, as if reading my mind. He grinned wolfishly. All the way from east of the Urals across the North Sea to make its landfall here, Watson. Do you know what the difference between Oxford and Cambridge is? He added. I confess I don't, Holmes. I was not uh, fortunate to study it either. I took my medical exam at the London University. They are both very fine universities, of course. The difference, said Holmes darkly, is that Cambridge produces martyrs and Oxford burns them. There's something in that, Watson, and there's something in this. Do you, do you know much about Thomas Arnold, Watson? I'm afraid that I don't, Holmes, I replied. The lights of Cambridge were drawing closer in the gloaming. Well, not beyond the public knowledge. Master at Ude Rugby, died young. He did. He died with his life's work uncompleted. You see, Arnold believed in moral character above all else. He said that the principal thing for a Christian and an Englishman to study was Christian and moral philosophy. He put little emphasis on the physical sciences which are my delight. I said nothing. Realising not just that this was another of the deep pockets of surprising knowledge that Holmes had access to, but that he was leading to something. Now, people ascribe to him the phrase muscular Christianity, which has entered not just our public and social discourse, but our educational methodology. Mensana and corpore sano. A healthy mind and a healthy body. Arnold's death and the success of the book Tom Brown's School Days meant that the idea of moral and ethical development that was vital to his view was lost, and an emphasis was placed on the development of physicality instead. People remember the football match, the big-side hare and hounds, birds nesting and fishing, swimming in the river, boxing and, of course, cricket. Tom's moral development under young Geordie is forgotten, as was this. Arnold was no enthusiast for sport, he permitted it only as an alternative to poaching and fighting with the local boys. When he was looking at Arnold's tomb in the chapel at Rugby recently, de Corbatan said that he was looking at the very cornerstone of the British Empire, the birthplace and founder of the modern ideal of athletic chivalry. Had Arnold lived, perhaps the balance would have been different. But it is perhaps to his death and our current social factors we can ascribe the primacy that we now give to those who can bowl or kick a ball. We were walking back through Cambridge now, and the night had gathered around us. Holmes went on. And yet I can't help feeling, Watson, that had he lived, Arnold would have seen in rowing a metaphor for all that he was trying to achieve. In cricket we have the dashing gentleman amateur whose status demands that he cut and flourish in a way the professional, working to keep his job, cannot. A fast bowler might run through the order and so win the match all on his own. Individual brilliance can win out. But in rowing, one must work for all. The individual must suborn his identity to that of the collective. He must serve them, sacrifice himself for them. Is this not Arnold's ideals of service truly expressed more than any game with bat and ball? Like all of us, they write their deeds in water, Watson. They write their deeds in water and yet still they write. I said nothing. There was nothing to say.
We had put up at a coaching inn just around the corner from the college. We changed and I ate a light supper, accompanied by Holmes, who, as was his wont on a case, ate nothing. He stared into the middle distance for a long time before rousing himself. Baupair take the strain first if Mr Muttlebury is right, Watson. Young Martin was Mr Pittman's choice to be that vital cog in the machine, and he told him so on the night he died. For all of his youth, for all of his inexperience, Martin had grasped what others could not. And now he's dead in a locked room by no earthly means other than suicide. Holmes threw his pipe on the table in disgust with himself. I'm missing something, Watson. I've interviewed everyone, and yet I'm missing something. I'm sure that I am. You can only do your best, Holmes. I have to do better, Watson. A young man's immortal soul is at stake, not to mention his honour and family name, and that of the college. Worse, a murderer will go free if I cannot untangle this. But you said yourself that you cannot pre-establish a conclusion. Otherwise you make the facts add up to what you want, I said. So you cannot think it is murder if the facts don't add up to it. But the facts don't add up to suicide, cried Holmes. That's the point. The facts don't add up to it at all. These things happen, I began. No one ever killed themselves who was of sound mind. The human instinct is to live. One has to be an extremist to consider it. And young Mr. Martin had a great deal to live for. I paused, feeling that even though I had wanted to make the contrary point, I was about to stumble onto something. Go on, Watson, breathed Holmes. What did he have to live for? Well, he had his whole life ahead of him, first year at university, doing well by all accounts, liked by all, and his first boat race to come next month. Oh, my dear Watson, breathed Holmes. That may be the missing piece. He rose. Where are you going? I'm going to ask our landlord if I may sit by his fire and smoke while I think this through, Watson. I need to sort this out in my mind. Do not wake up, Watson. Sleep. I may not be here when you wake tomorrow. I have some inquiries to make. If I am right and my inquiries are fruitful, then breakfast well, for tomorrow we may find our answers. So there you have it. Has Holmes found something or has he found nothing? Are these the delusional rambles of a cocaine-addicted gentleman amateur? That's Holmes, not myself. Or is he onto something? Will the mystery finally be uncovered by the keen workings of Sherlock Holmes's mind and Dr. Watson's good old English-British bulldog doggedness? Find out in part six, coming very soon. <laughs>